You are listening to How Bass Music Shaped British Society, a podcast series exploring the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised music, from sound, business and culture to people, preservation and society. My name's Don Letts. I'm a filmmaker, DJ, radio broadcaster. I was born right here in the UK in the Royal Borough of Kensington in 1956, which makes me as old as rock and roll. My parents came over in the mid-50s as part of the whole Windrush thing, and they brought with them their hopes, their dreams, and their precious record collections. As part of the Windrush generation, they were primarily brought over for cheap labour. So my dad drove a bus, my mum was a seamstress, and there was four of us boys living in a sort of two-up, two-down in Brixton. Um... And growing up, you know, there's music all around us. I mean, you know, my dad had a little sound system of his own, but it weren't like the big grass clark sound systems you have today. It was kind of a little tiny affair, and they'd, ha- they'd get together after church on a Sunday. And it was really a means of kind of uh, staying in touch with each other, easing the pain of a hard-working week, and getting news from back home. You know, unlike white culture, Music's inherently there. It's not something that the kids do. You know, your grandparents are listening, your parents are listening, and the kids are listening. So it's constantly there. I mean, the first time I became aware of reggae, really, was when my dad brought home this album, um, King Stitt's Fire Corner. And that really stuck out, because that was the first time I heard kind of DJ, MC business, you know what I mean? But pre that, he'd be playing kind of early Matles, Prince Buster, mixed with a bit of Jim Reeves and Perry Como and Nat King Cole. Old Jamaicans love country and western. I don't know why, but they love country and western. I mean, there was that classic difference between mum and dad in that mum favoured, I don't know, Ray Charles, later on, um, Engelbert Humpledink to Ross, and Tom Jones. She loved Tom Jones. Dad, he was more Nat King Cole, Fats Domino. You know, roots of reggae, in a weird way, Fats Domino, the whole R&B boogie thing, we'll get to that. It's funny that it's in my house. You're describing my house all yeah. at the moment. So, just bouncing off my household, at any point, were you forced to go to church on a Sunday? I mean, I, I definitely remember going to church. I don't remember the force, because in a Jamaica family, there's not a lot of option. You don't get to say no. Otherwise, you get to rasp licks. So, yeah, we went kind of just in almost like in a robotic fashion and just go and you sit down and I was always pissed off because I never got to eat any of that bread or drink any of that wine but eventually I mean parents could see that we weren't really into it and they let let us go our own way what I did like was the after church bit where people got together in the kind of little hall at the back and that was interesting because they'd be setting up their sound systems which weren't like the ones you have today trust me um but it was a way of them kind of getting together, man, and staying in touch with each other and getting news from back home. Let's move from, say, an age of, say, 10 mm-hmm. to about an age of, say, 15. And the reason for okay, this yeah, is yeah. just looking what's happening at school now. How individual or the same as uh, do you think your education, your experience within the household uh, was when compared to your peers at school? So it's, it's, yeah. it's getting an idea of what was your experience? Ten, you, know. you know, it's funny, growing up mm. in a Jamaican household, music was, I know it sounds like a cliche, but it was just all around you, all encompassing. So you kind of took it for granted. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like a big deal, it was just a thing. You dig it. And then you went to school and you, the white kids are listening to pop. 
you know, I'm talking about like mid to early, mid, mid to late 60s. Now, what's interesting for me is that I came of age in the early 70s. Same time that Trojan came on the scene, which was an absolutely crucial thing, because what happened was, all of a sudden, my white mates are digging it. And it kind of gave me a musical equity. I began to think, oh, Ross, you know, we got something to bring to the party, something that I was taking for granted before. And then when Trojan started having char hits, we got on clear. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what, we had um, Young, Gifted and Black. I mean, and I've kind of let forward. I mean, we're talking about Trojan, but don't forget about five years earlier, Millie had a hit with My Boy Lollipop, which was another like, really inspiring moment, especially for my parents' generation. Black men on the telly, and it wasn't a criminal, you know? Um, but because there was no immediate follow-up, it was almost written off as a kind of a novelty kind of thing. You dig what I'm saying? But then Trojan launched in 1968 and had like a succession of hits. From 68, they had entered the charts with um, Tony Tribe's Red Red Wine. And then 71, Boba Marcia's Young, Gifted and Black, which I can't tell you how empowering that was for a young black British kid in this environment. Uh, you know, it was tough. You know, people don't realize that we're talking about some serious racial tension due in part to the Holy Not Powell thing. You know, and while he's playing on the fears of the old white folk, it was Jamaican music that was uniting black and white kids on the street. You know, so it was a, it was a serious cultural thing, man. And like I said, all of a sudden my white mates are digging my Jamaican music, so he gave us this musical equity. And it, you know, you were walking like six feet tall, Bridget. Double barrel, number one, game over. <laughs> This is David Ansel Collins. Yes, yeah, David Ansel Collins here, yeah. And so, and again, what's interesting about that particular song is its lack of lyrics. <laughs> but people were still mimicking uh, his kind of vocal sounds, which is, it, it, this is pre-rap, but it was interesting how people would mimic, um, was it? I mean, I guess, you know, you've got to put it in context. You've got to imagine how weird a record like Double Barrel would have sounded at that time. Almost lyricless, but it had the beginnings of this kind of rap MC thing going, which nobody had heard before. Not to mention this kind of heavy bass instrumental. It must have been kind of surreal to most white people. But it obviously struck a chord, man. Because from that point, from that whole Trojan catalogue, that kind of ignited the UK's love affair with Jamaican music, you know. I mean, another beautiful thing about the whole Trojan run of hits is we had black people on the telly week after week after week, you know, and we weren't criminals. You know, it wasn't like, what is it, um, Crime Stoppers or something, you <laughs> dig what I'm saying? And it's ironic that, you know, for my parents' generation, they try to succeed in this society by denying their roots, by anglicizing themselves. And then 10 years later, after they've done all their hard graft and got the picture of the queen on the wall and all this shit, here comes their culture that they've kind of kept in the background and kept at home. And it was that that was actually going to help them to integrate within the society. You know, something that my generation realised. My parents' generation, not all of them, but a lot of them definitely tried to anglicise themselves, which was never going to work. Growing up as a teenager, you know, we saw that our parents were being fucked over. And furthermore, you know, you're talking about in the wake of 68, you've got the black power thing going on, the civil rights movement, you know, Angela Davis, man. So. My generation were getting this education. The world was exploding with kind of counterculture and revolution. And we were tapping into this, you know, and we're tapping into the whole black power thing. 
And really out of that, you know, the beginnings of sort of Rastafari would start coming through because it becomes more about being pro-black. So at the same time, we have the birth almost of Rastafarianism coming through. It's just creeping through in the UK. It's a slow Yeah, I burn. mean, I mean, for me, Trojan's heyday was kind of between 1968 and sort of 73, 74. And all of a sudden, there was a kind of social cultural shift here in the UK and Jamaica, you know, politically and economically. And the music changed to reflect that. So in Jamaica, the music becomes more politicized, more militant, more Rasta. And those messages struck a chord with us growing up in the UK because we were feeling the pressure of the two, you know. We had the fucking National Front running us down. We had the police stopping us on the street every five minutes. And one of the interesting things about the whole Trojan thing is it was a very black and white thing, you know, when I mean, the whole skinhead thing came out of that. And when I talk about skinheads, I'm talking about the fashion version, not the fascist version that emerged later in the mid-70s. When the music shifted to the more politicized, militant, slow-down, bass-heavy grooves, that wasn't for everyone, you know. It, it was understandable because it came a lot more pro-black and it was a lot harder for these white kids to be skanking to tunes like that. It's funny, before the whole Rasta thing came into my life, I was kind of stepping between our early sound system to the whole Soul Boy thing. I don't think people speak enough about the fact that I think all Jamaicans, nearly everybody, loved American Soul. But there was something weird about the Soul scene for me because it was a bit kind of elitist or something. And I never felt comfortable with that. You know what I mean? It's like if you weren't in the Soul, you weren't cool, man. And you're still listening to Jamaican stuff. That's kind of back. You know what I mean? It's kind of weird shit. So. I don't know, I guess it was the advent of Bob Marley and me looking for an identity that drove me towards Rastafari, which definitely was a kind of a much better option than what I saw being offered in, in the soul thing. Because that was too Americanized and we were, you know, we could take tips from America, but we weren't bloody American. We were coming from somewhere else. In Jamaica, I mean, people think Rastafari is one definitive thing. Within our father's house, there is many mansions. And it was the same here in the UK. You had extremes from, you know, 12 tribes in Brixton, in uh, Kennington. And then you had the man on the street that was kind of just taking the bits that worked for him and forgetting the rest. That would be somebody like myself. I mean, I went to Ethiopian Doctrine Church, but there's just, it was, for me, it was too limiting on the journey that I'd set myself. And then I, I started to develop this whole problem with labels anyway, you know, being defined. But, at that time, it was about empowerment. It was about inspiration, because we were definitely made to feel like we were second-class citizens. So can you give us like, a rough kind of year? For me? Yeah. I mean, the whole thing comes together for me with the advent of Bob Marley and Catch a Fire. You know, that spoke volumes to me. I was at the Lyceum gig, and I walked out of that a changed person. You know, because here was somebody succeeding by his own standards, by his own values gone with the kind of straightened hair and slick suits. He's singing about shit that I understand. In his language, there was no compromise. And uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be the man I am today if it wasn't for lessons from Bob. And so how does your immediate community change as you are changing at this point? I mean, the whole reggae and soul thing definitely got more and more polarized because one was about escapism and the other one's about realism you know, there's, a, there's a period at school I forgot what age you're 11 or 12 you have to opt for certain subjects right and I was really good at art and um, basically artist things art music and all the rest of it 
and I was crap at all the more academic things. So I go home and parents, I have to opt for certain things. I say, well, black people, you know, Danny, that's what they used to call me. We, we don't really do the art thing. Black people ain't artists. So they made me do technical drawing, chemistry and physics. Shit I hated. And unfortunately for them, at the age of 14, I got to see my first live band. I'm in the school playground, a rumor goes around the school, there's some band playing down the road at six o'clock, free gig. I'll check it out, in my school uniform, walk into this joint, it's The Who, doing what you call a full production rehearsal. That means I ain't just jamming along, they're gonna play as if they're playing live for an album called Who's Next. I'm 15 feet away from the stage, lasers, dry eyes, Keith Moon doing his thing, um, Townsend doing the windmill, and at that moment, my life changed. I didn't want to be a musician necessarily, but I knew I wanted to be in this world somehow. Few, about a few weeks or months later, my exams come up. I get chemistry. 10 minutes, I hand in this thing. A chemist I was not to be, that I clearly state, because I've got a splitting headache and I cannot concentrate. Technical drawing, I draw a nude woman. Right under it, one line. Curves are better than straight lines, and I handed it in. What I'm basically saying is that I had this rock and roll epiphany that made me totally rebel and say fuck it to that academic life, and I was just gonna choose another path. Didn't know what it was, you know, but I knew that shit weren't for me. Ended up working on the Kings Road Chelsea. Best move I ever made. My first challenge when I quit school early was when I decided to get into Rastafari, started to grow my dreads, and my parents were not having it. It was like, cut off that Ross or you're out of here. I was gone. And that forced me to kind of work out how I was gonna pay rent, where I was gonna live and all the rest of it. Ended up working on the Kings Road Chelsea, which was a kind of hive of cultural activity back in those days. I know it's hard to imagine now. You know, it's been sterilized and corporatized and all the rest of it. But um, that was all where all the beautiful people were. And of course, don't. <laughs> yeah, but you've got to understand that when I entered the King's Road, we're talking 1972, 73-ish, I was like this baby guy with an afro then, and uh, didn't know really shit from shit. But what was interesting is that I realized, very quickly realized that my black culture had some kind of value.
So we've got reggae, it's taken off in the UK. Um, we've got the Jamaican artists coming in. We've got you in Kings Road. Um, but culturally, there is this kind of underground revolution taking place in terms of people coming together from all different uh, racial backgrounds around the music. It's, you know, it's interesting that you kind of take for granted the part that music played in uniting people at a grassroots level. You have to understand, I'm of the vinyl generation. I've got an analogue attitude, you know, and it was about listening to music that helped you to be all you can be, not just selling your shit. You know what I'm saying? It was about changing your mind, not your fucking sneakers. And, you know, you'd go and buy an album and you'd sit down in a room and you'd all sit there and listen to the album from top to bottom. You know, and the room was designed around your stereo, not your TV. So it was this whole ritual. And these albums were like food, man. And before I'm playing things like Catch a Fire, you know, you've got to listen to the godly words of something like Marvin Gaye. You know, we're dropping Last Poets, Sly and the Family Stone. You know what I mean? This is how we're getting our alternative education, because that's the thing. Back in those days, that was the only means of alternative information and inspiration, music. And we've got to talk about radio. Pirate radio's part in all of this. I mean, I remember as a child being curled up under the blankets, listening to, was it Radio Luxembourg? There was his brother on there called Emperor Roscoe. And if I remember rightly, he was one of the first brethren to really drop the odd reggae tune. You know, this is way before John Peel and all that shit. There's another crucial point in this narrative and it's 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 getting a sense of where you are at the birth of punk and okay reggae yeah mid 70s that mid 70s yeah dread dread we're talking about um three-day weeks strikes massive unemployment crucially rise of the national front and some serious police pressure but you know what funny enough I, I we had reggae to kind of ease our pain and express ourselves you know chant down babylon and all the rest of it um, my white mate's not quite so lucky. <laughs> you know, popular music of those days was kind of the prog rock thing. So they set about creating this thing, punk rock. And uh, the punky reggae party, as it's called, was kind of created in this club, the Roxy. This kind of cultural exchange between black and white kids. Well, me and a bunch of holy poor white people. But for me to turn on these punk rockers to reggae, it wasn't hard because people forget 10 years before, what were they listening to? The sounds of Trojan. John Lydon, or Rotten as he was known then, Joe Strummer, Paul Simon, and many of those other kids, they knew Double Barrel and all those tunes. I mean, the people I turned on were the people that didn't have any interaction with black people, that didn't live next door to black people, the white people from the suburbs. And I guess in the late 70s, there was a whole heap of them, you know what I mean? So they're the ones I kind of hip to the vibe. But I couldn't take responsibility for that whole... You know, in a weird way, the punky reggae party started with Trojan, man. You know, and I just was part of that chain, you know, passing on that energy, that vibe, that culture. A few years after the Lyceum gig, Bob comes back to London, he's playing, I can't remember where. After the show, I get in my car and I follow the coach back to his hotel in Harrington Gardens in Kensington. And I kind of hustle my way into the room with all the other band members and the UK Rasters coming to pay respect. And Bob's in the middle of this big room in his lounge at a table and he's smoking herb and reasoning with all the UK dreads. Turns to like three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, he's out-reasoned and out-smoked everybody. Sees me in the corner with my little bag of herb, and he summons me to the table, and he proceeds to finish off my weed. But by the end of that, we kind of struck up a kind of relationship. I mean, friendships stretch. Anyway, fast forward a few years later, 1977, he's in exile in the UK after being shot in Jamaica. 
and he happens to be staying around the corner from my shop at me attractions um, in Oakley Street. Now, I can't remember how it came about, but I, did, I don't know, I turned him onto some weed one time, some tie sticks, and Bob loved the tie sticks. And during that year, I can't deny that me and probably a whole heap of the brethren took care of Bob. Let's put it that way. But that gave me a time to get acquainted with him. I mean, people say I was a friend of Bob. I think, like I said, that's a stretch to me. It wasn't like he was saying, ringing me up and saying, come round for tea. But he'd come down to the shop looking for me to help him out, so to speak. Um, I remember one time going around to because I was young then, you got to understand, I was like 18 or 19, this is my hero. I go around with a Polaroid camera and I take a picture of, I don't know, whatever it was, I, I think it was Skill Cole. Pull out the picture, instant picture, Dreads like blood clot, instant picture, and I'd never seen a Polaroid before. All of a sudden, everybody wants a picture with Bob. After 10 pictures, fucking finished. I haven't got my picture with Bob. Run around the corner to get some more Polaroid, come back. The cook and a whole heap of other people in the room, they want a picture with Bob. Another 10 pictures gone. Third run back to the shop, I eventually got my picture with Bob. <laughs> I was a young man. I've got that picture, by the way. So one day I go around to Bob's to collect some money he owes me. Man used to smoke a whole heap of weed. And I'm wearing these bondage trousers, these kind of punk rock clothes, right? And I walk in and Bob, he looks at me, he's like, Dan Letts, we are dealing with you. You look like one of them nasty blood clout punk rocker. He'd been reading the tabloid press and the press had painted a very negative idea of what punk was about. Nihilism, negativity, never about any of that shit. It was about empowerment, freedom, individuality. Anyway. I'm like young baby done, I'm 19 years old. And I'm like, well, hold on a minute, Bob, which is a big deal. And I'm trying to hold my corner and defend my white bridge. And I'm like, Bob, you got it wrong. You know, there's something going on there. We're kind of like-minded rebels. And Bob just said, we are tight, Bob. Leave the area. And I left with my tail between my legs. That was the last time I spoke to Bob. Three months later, a somewhat better informed Bob was moved to write the tune, Punky Reggae Party because he even recognised there was something going on. We're moving from mid-70s into the latter part, the last quarter of the 70s. And the reason I'm stressing this time slot is because it's seminal in our relationship to the music. Um, so we've got... Where are we? So what date again? We're moving from 76 to 77, the last quarter of uh, the 70s, which is seminal because Round about 77, 78, oh, Tone comes in, but... Go, nah, Rasta, you uh, missed a fucking crucial uh, part of our sound system culture. You've got to uh, get this in. Love is rock, man. Oh, of course. Yeah, you but know, it's, pre, it's, 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 yes, but Which is pre-Tone. It's 75, it's... Seven, funny enough, crucial Love is rock, 75 to 81. That's the crucial period. It obviously evolved from there. But the Lovers Rock thing was tremendously important because before that it was all about Jamaica, Jamaica, Jamaica. And here we are, black British, children of Windrush, looking for our identity, looking for our part in this story. And uh, Lovers Rock comes on the scene, you know. And what was really interesting about Lovers Rock, it was driven by women, totally driven by women in this male-dominated genre. And they were all young, you know. And that was the first time that we had any real competition music-wise with J.A. I mean, it had so much effect that eventually people like Dennis Brown and Gregory Isaacs and Sugar Miner are all jumping on it in the early 80s, you know? But that was a tremendously important part of, in our journey of having a black British identity, the whole lover's rock, rock thing. 
And quite often gets written out, you know. It's, it's really important that you mention that. And also, Lover's Rock was the antidote to Roots. And what was interesting about the whole Lover's Rock evolution is that, you know, it evolved at a time when the dominant form was the militant, politicised Rasta reggae. But that wasn't for everybody. You know, it was a, it was a bit too much for everybody. I mean, plus, you weren't fighting all the time. And also, crucially, all the children of Windrush, or those that have been brought over at a very young age, were in their late teens or early 20s. So matters of the heart are coming into play. You dig what I'm saying? And you need a soundtrack for that rass on a Sunday night or to be able to find your girl in a dance. And that's what Lover's Rock was all about. It was about romance. And, and also, it was designed for people to dance together. You know, the militant reggae, rasta, full khaki business, you're skanking on your own. Lovers, you stick like glue. And I, I just wanted to comment on, um, in this context, we move now from, is it Junior Mervyn's Police and Thieves, mm -hmm. that comes out, it's, it's kind of a hit in the black community, and then it's picked up by... The clash, yeah. Clash, so if you could just walk us through that from your perspective, what's happening. Well, it's, in okay. terms of what you're doing, okay. where you're at, because yeah. you've got this connection now with Marley and reggae and okay. whatever. All right, let me try this. I mean, I guess one of the best examples of that whole punky reggae thing would be the Clash's interpretation of Junior Mervyn's Police and Thieves, which Lee Scratch Perry said they ruined, by the way. But, you know, I, I, I dug it because it wasn't them trying to copy the reggae thing. They sort of took the inspiration and did their own thing with it, which is very much what punk was about. But that kind of opened doors for people to be more open-minded about their musical influences. And that would manifest itself with the, um, the rise of two-tone which in the early 80s, which was really the energy of punk and the kind of rebellious spirit of reggae kind of being mashed up together. And those kids too were totally informed by Trojan. So there's a line that goes right the way through, because they would have known, I mean, their catalogue, Two Tones catalogue is kind of predominantly kind of Trojan-based stuff. You dig what I'm saying? So there is this kind of continuity that, you know, seeds were sown by Trojan that go all the way through. So just to jump back now and focus on terms of what are you doing for work at this point? Because we heard earlier mm. uh, there is this passion that's been ignited at one yeah. end by Rasta, Mali, Reggae, mm. and at the other end by The Who and the excitement of lights. And So I'm DJing at the Roxy, playing reggae to punk rockers. And uh, one of the most interesting things about the whole punk rock movement was this DIY ethos, do it yourself. I'm looking around, all my white brethren are picking up guitars and the stage is getting full up, but, you know, the energy was such that you wanted to do something too. I picked up a, a Super 8 movie camera. I'd seen a Harder They Come five years earlier, 1971-72. And that had a tremendous effect on me, because it's interesting, you know, growing up in the early 70s, we knew what we sounded like, because we had the music coming over, but we never knew what we looked like, other than postcards of, you know, sort of colonial images, Martin Limbo dancing or somebody riding a donkey with a straw hat on a beach. You know, that's the only images we saw in Jamaica. And then Harder They Come comes along. So I was struck by, it gave a kind of visual accompaniment that didn't exist before. And I was struck by the power of cinema to inform, inspire and entertain. Thought, hmm, wouldn't mind doing, being a filmmaker, but of course, early 70s, ridiculous idea for a young black man.
years later, punk rock comes along, DIY. I pick up a movie camera and start filming these bands that were exploding in front of me. And uh, to cut a long story short, ended up making a thing called the punk rock movie. And basically with the, the inspiration of reggae, Rastafari and punk rock, I reinvented myself as Don Letts, the filmmaker. So while all this shit's going on, I'm starting to make music videos. Firstly for The Clash, public image, so on and so forth. We're at a point also where the industry, the music industry, is focused on bringing in this music from Jamaica, exploiting it in whichever way possible. We're, we're at the okay. 70s, we've okay. got Island, we've got Virgin. Oh, okay, 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 yeah. All these labels are maximizing <clears throat> their profits from this subject area. Yeah. And now we're into the visuals, which is just creeping in yeah. into this. What's interesting about the punky reggae relationship dynamic is that it shone a light on this music that was still primarily underground. You know, all of a sudden you have labels emerging like Island. I mean, it was punk's interest that was behind the formation of Richard Branson's Frontline label, a tremendously important label in of itself because it caught another magical period. And that came about after the Sex Pistols broke up, John looking, John Lydon's looking to escape the kind of media madness and the paparazzi. So he decides to go with Branson as a kind of advisor, because Branson wants to start this reggae label. And be it, me being black and John's mate, he says, Don, you want to come to Jamaica? And I'm like, sure, never been to Jamaica in my fucking life. Closest I'd been was seeing the harder they come. Mm. So Branson's gone to Jamaica to start this label called Frontline in the same way that Blackwell had his Island Records. And me, Branson, and Lydon land in Jamaica. We check in at the Sheraton Hotel. Branson books the whole of the first floor. And then, it's like somebody had beaten the jungle drums. Rich white man in Jamaica signing up reggae artists. Because over the next two weeks, there was this mass exodus, where exodus is from, but it was an exodus to the hotel. Everybody who was anybody trying to get a deal, I swear to you, over that two weeks, I met every single Jamaican artist. People whose names I'd only previously seen on the back of record labels, man. Other than Bob, Burning Spear, Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler, I'm sitting around a pool. There's Iroy, Uroy, Big Youth, Tapazuki, Congos, Abyssinians, Yabba, I mean, it was insane. It's the most magical journey of my life. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you can imagine, what was a real shock was, you know, these legendary names that I see on record labels, you'd think they'd be living large, but it was a real eye-opener to see that they were all feeling the squeeze too. You know what I mean? That was kind of an interesting lesson, is that you could have this big musical aura and vibe and, be living on your ass in, in you know in Jamaica. That was a, a trip. So as we leave the 80s, mm -hmm. um, most people or a lot of people in sound system culture found it really challenging because the music's changing. We're moving yeah, to yeah. another generation. Yeah. The impact of the previous three decades is still resonating, but it's coming out differently. Oh yeah, no, listen. So, I mean, once bass culture entered the mix, I mean, it's kind of. You know, just, it's part of the fabric of popular music now. I mean, if you don't know the story, then you ain't going to be able to join the dots. But the whole idea of pushing bass center stage comes from Jamaica. The idea of using a, a mixing desk as an instrument in of itself comes from Jamaica. Rap as an art form started in Jamaica, although it has some roots in America, that's another story. Um, 
I mean, you know, you've got to understand that Jamaica's gift to the world was bass, you know, and it is an, an integral part of popular music across the board. By the kind of mid-80s reggae and the bass line, bass culture, sound system culture, has not only become part of the fabric of music, I mean, a lot of kids have grown up on sound system culture, so you're getting things like Soul to Soul, for instance, that's taking, like, heavy bass lines from Jamaica, melodic lessons from maybe America, and then putting it through a UK filter. Coming into early 90s now, a lot of mercy, jungle, drum and bass, straight line back to sound system culture. You know, and even things like Rave and all that, when they come along, I mean, you know, check out somebody like The Orb. It's all totally about bass and King Tubby Dread. So it ain't gone nowhere, it's just morphed into all these different things and informed a shitload of dance music. You know, people always put me down as the man responsible for the punky reggae party. And as I said, I think Trojan had a part in that. But there was one seminal moment in 1975 when I really think the whole thing really started. Working in the King's Road, Chelsea, one day Patty Smith comes into the shop. She hears me playing reggae and she's like, oh, I really like this dude Tapazuki. Do you know him? My brethren. He was living here at the time. She says to me, look, bring him to the gig tonight and, uh, you know, I want to say hi. We go to the Hammersmith Odeon, sellout crowd, what was it, three, four thousand people. Me and Tapper Azuki are standing in the wings, watching P Patty Smith do her thing. All of a sudden, Patty grabs Tapazuki, pulls him on stage, and puts a guitar in his hand. Tapper's an MC, he's a rapper, he's a DJ, he don't play guitar. So I'm in the wings, killing myself with laughter, and I signal to Tapper, look, just hear a guitar, brethren, hear a guitar. <laughs> He starts to air guitar. Patty's doing a rah, rah, rah thing. I'm killing myself with laughter. All of a sudden, Patty comes over to me, pulls me on stage. You know what she does? Puts a mic in my hand. Problem. There's no such thing as air mic. Lucky for me, I got my shades on because people couldn't see the abject terror as I burst into some serious Jamaican slanguage. Cramp and paralyzed them and those who worship Babylon. Man. Basically, I went so heavy and deep so that people did, couldn't understand what I was saying and furthermore, couldn't understand that I didn't know what I was saying. And I'm doing this Rastafari chant, Tapper's doing his guitar, I look at my feet, Patty's on the floor, writhing and trying to play guitar. And that, in my mind, was the start of the punky reggae party. You know, it's interesting, my relationship with the punk rockers got me to Jamaica through John Lydon when the pistol split up. And my foray into being in a band happened through a happy punk accident. Because when Mick left The Clash, I remember being in a club with him one day and uh, he's standing between me and my Rasta brethren, Leo, who's a bass player. And Mick looks at Leo and he looks at me and says, oh, we look like a band. I'm like, brethren, I can't play anything. And he's like, don't worry about that. I remember when Paul Simonon joined The Clash, had coloured stickers, had stickers on his uh, fret. So I joined BAD, not being able to play anything. And funny enough, Paul eventually obviously lost his stickers. I never lost my sticker, because when I was on stage, I had stickers on my keyboard to show me what to do. But interestingly, Mick got me in the band because I couldn't play anything. So my ideas were coming from left of centre. I'm the guy that primarily was responsible for the dialogue and sample thing, because they're in the studio laying, laying down tracks, and I wanted to do something, you know what I'm saying? And uh, started to steal big chunks of dialogue from movies like, you know, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, um, Harder They Come. So I'm using that kind of cinematic approach to making music to give it another dimension. And to be honest, we were the first band to have big commercial hits using samples and dialogue. And this is so early in the day 
that the companies didn't know what was going on and we didn't get sued. By the time Stella Sol comes along with Three Feet Iron Rising, they were fucked. But very quickly I realized that, you know, stealing people's shit and sticking a track wasn't gonna earn me any money. So I threw myself into lyric writing and uh, the first song I wrote, Equals MC Squared, with mixed guidance, was a hit. So all of a sudden I'm starting to write lyrics and ended up writing, I don't know, 40, 50% of the shit with Mick Jones. And that was a big buzz, you know, and that, again, it's another kind of musical expression that, it was only through the self-belief of all that had gone before that gave me the courage to be able to be able to do it. I got no musical training whatsoever. Still can't play shit. I got enough gold discs though. You know, because the, the thing is, it, I sort of realized through the punk thing, it wasn't about technical ability. It was about the idea. That was much more important. And interestingly, BAD was a kind of cultural reflection of how we'd grown up, because it was about Jamaican bass lines, New York beats, Mick doing his UK rock and roll thing, and me doing a bit of sample and dialogue, bringing in the kind of 20th century into the mix. Do you know what I mean? Utilizing the sounds that we heard around us and the stuff that we were into. So here I am, can't play shit. I'd seen The Who as a young man in 1971. With BAD, we're in New York. We do an 11 night run at a place called the Irving Plaza. One night, look around the audience, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, Pete Frampton, Jimmy Cliff, Beastie Boys. And then they all came into the dressing room afterwards. And there I am, I got a picture with Bowie and Jimmy Cliff and, you know, man. And you have to laugh. You got to, you know, the dreads come all the way from Brixton with a bit of punk rock inspiration and some serious bass culture. And here I am standing there with all kind of my heroes and people that were a big part of my life. That's another thing, you know, we're not talking about this black British thing, is that it wasn't one way traffic, you know, as black British youth, we were informed and turned on by a lot of the stuff that we were listening to here. You know, we were, you know, we were digging the Stones and the Beatles, some of us. Some of us were digging Bowie and Roxy music and the rest of it. A lot of what's informed my contemporaries, whether it be the Jazzy Bees, Tricky, Roots Maneuver, um, Congo Natty, um, so on and so forth. I think a lot of that's made us who we are is the fact that we have grown up with them it's the duality of our existence, the black and the British. And we don't really talk about that part too much. You know what I'm saying? That's what made us the people who we are. That's what separated us. It's the accumulative experience. But that. being open to it, yeah. being receptive to these things that ain't black. Mm. You know, but somehow I feel a vibe from it. All right, I'm going to put that in the mix. So now... I mean, I know I'm black. I don't need to prove to nobody, you know what I mean? I don't need to wear a badge or not. And that's inherently who I am. So all I can do is be open. You're more than open, you're actually painting a picture through film. You painted it um, through being a DJ. Uh, you painted it through appearing on stage. You've, you've been painting it through lyrics, uh, being in a band. So, at that moment, mm. where you have, you're surrounded by superstars, mm. Where is up from that point for Don? You know what's funny about being surrounded? I mean, I remember that moment in the dressing room and Bowie's back there and he comes up to speak to me. And I'm kind of so buzzing. I'm like, yeah, look, go, yeah, go and talk to my girlfriend. And I ushered him away. I mean, it wasn't, you know, <laughs> I mean, I was kind of, it wasn't like I was standing there in awe because these people were here to see me. You dig what I'm saying? So it wasn't like I was, oh, Mr. Bowie. I literally, I remember, I regret it to this day, but I literally sent him to Lola, go and speak to my girlfriend and sent him away. You know, I remember being backstage with The Clash and Andy Warhol's there. And you've got to understand, it, I, I, although I was informed by these people, I'd kind of 
broken through that fourth wall where you're the stars and I'm the fan and forevermore it shall be. It was punk rock that he really gave me that. I've got to be honest. And so I'm, you know, I'm messing with Andy Warhol, telling him there's drugs in the cake and the brother's freaking out. You know, um, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, Dunlex was firm, yeah, I, I, yeah. I was tooled up and armed, man. But here's a, here's, here's a question, what was the question about you that, then. Yeah. Um, because a lot of artists at this point, this is where they actually fall apart. The, the, the success in itself ah, is... that's interesting, you mentioned... ...becomes the challenge. I don't think I've ever... I, me, I'm just doing a thing. Success? I come from Brixton. I'm a South Londoner. I'm, you know, it's all a result to me. I don't, I don't have a master plan. Um, I give thanks and praise. You know, enough people come and go, no one knows who the fuck they are. You know, I... Uh, yeah, but, I, that, but that's, that's the point, Don. So, for many artists, and I've spoken to lots of artists who said, you know, I lost it at one point. Um, I never had it to lose. But you're there. And then uh, it, it's a bit abstract to me. I mean, it's all. I mean, this is life. I'm alive. I'm. A, you know what I mean? Come on. I think I've never. Listen, I watch the news every single day. I record it and watch it in the, the day, just to put my life into perspective. You know, I'm not so up my ass that I forget the, the, the cards that most people on this planet are dealt. And most of them are dealt a shit deck, my friend. You know what I mean? And I think, if anything, yeah, I've just kept myself grounded. You know, it ain't hard. So you if know. we leap forward now. I've got to say, yeah. you asked me about films, yeah. while we're doing this, because I've got to say that, you know, the whole, you know, with bass inspiration and a bit of punk rock, you know, I ended up making documentaries for Gil Scott Heron, you know, George Clinton, uh, Sun Ra, after he passed away. I even got myself a Grammy bridging, you know. I mean, stuff I don't normally talk about, but in the context of this journey, it's kind of impressive. No, it's important. No. It's absolutely important to, to voice that, because... I don't normally talk about that shit. I mean, other people say, Don Litz, Grammy Award-winning filmmaker. I don't normally... But in the context of this journey, as we're sitting here, I can look back and yeah, not bad, he's done all right. I'm recognised over here, but I don't need no recognition, Fredrin. I get people, like, stopping me in the street, all right, Don, I really appreciate that film. That's my recognition. I don't, I don't need no blessing by society. It sounds corny. But, you know, the fact that you can make a connection with somebody you never met, it's not to be taken for granted. And I'm not looking for kind of world-changing domination. If I can just turn on a brethren, that's enough for me. That's how it starts. So, looking back now, what would you say key high points in your journey so far? We're not going to talk about career being over. Your journey so far, we're looking back from this position of 2018, where we look, we're recognising 50 years of reggae and that whole Windrush contribution in terms of parents and families and so forth? High points? Yeah. Man, I'm as old as rock and roll. There's a whole heap of them. I mean, really. Um, well, give us give us. All right, let me try this. Let me try this. Um, high points. Well, the Trojan Explosion was a high point. Soundtrack my teenage youth, early teenage youth. Uh, the advent of punk rock. Seeing Bob Marley at the Lyceum. Making my first music video. Or let's say, past the duchy. Pastor Dutchie, um, God. Being on Top of the Pops, that was some funny shit. Top of the Pops, that's some funny shit. Top of the Pops, twice! One, once I was miming with another band. <laughs> uh, oh, God. Yeah, but Pastor Dutchie was a big deal. Uh, big Audio Dynamite was a massive deal. I'm gonna leap forward to Dancehall Queen, 1997, because that goes all the way back to me seeing A Harder They Come and first had the idea of wanting to express myself visually. And ironically, I always thought the first film I'd make or I wanted to make would be about the place that made me who I am, London. I mean, I'm London born and bred bridging. I'm what this city looks like now. 
And uh, ironically, or fortunately, the opportunity came up through my relationship with Chris Blackwell to make this film Dance Hall Queen. And uh, the film smashed it, Bridget. I think it remains. If you ask young people their favorite Jamaican film, across the board, it's Dance Hall Queen. If you ask my generation, it's gonna be Harder They Come. A far superior film, trust me. But Dance Hall Queen was kind of a homage to Harder They Come, you know. Um, there's, there's scenes in there that are a direct rip from Harder They Come. I've actually ripped scenes from Harder They Come in about 20 of my music videos. I can't tell you what an inspiration that was to my life. But um, to see that movie strike a chord with the people of Jamaica was a big deal. The girls them in the club, the whole of them just I do the rubber dogs The butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker The twist maker, the nurse and the girl me precious Two more need to the game one side Number one, Sony Tone Two more need to the rubber dub sound Alright Taking the Sonya bass and taking the Sonya treble Everything he drew sound balance and well level Tapping a guapad and all the bass is a rebel So, and them ya sound run down 7 to 7 Select a same but like a lawas And when them come in, them start chase like a parrot If you drop a pin, you could a year to only dance quiet All in mid-rain scenes as if it a riot When them start where you know me not hear no higher The bass line sound like say the pandaya All I could a hear from the door is a wonder Because soon me play on them red like Goliath The bar start tremble like him ever eat your rock Well this is a warning to all your son in the apps You won't you chew who need To the rubber dub sound Alright Put If you drop up in your hood, I hear Tony dance quiet All the mid-range seems as if it a riot When them start here, you know we not hear no higher The bass line sound like say the pantaya All I could hear from the road is a wada Cause two me play on him dead like Goliath The bass start to the A1 side Why won't you choose me Why? to the rubber dub side? Alright, the creatures never fight but me 
Screen, dance or queen and the other screen. Such a demand that to kick off men in black bridging. I saw people fighting like three men trying to sit in one seat. And that was a big buzz for Don Letts. British born black, child of Windrush, totally informed and inspired by the land of my parents' birth. And to be able to take that there and the people, I mean, the reason they loved the film is because they saw themselves. Blackwell insisted, we ain't gonna have people speaking no twang language that doesn't represent the, the true people. He said he wouldn't, wouldn't make the film. It's down to CV, I have to say. Because anybody else would have said, all right, we're going to tweak it a bit. And, you know, when French people make a film and Japanese people make a film, they don't change their fucking language. You know, it's really disrespectful. So CB said, you make it real done and he'll back it. And, I've, you know, I've got to give enough love for that, you know. And um, it's a cultural phenomenon in the, in the reggae fraternity. I mean, people still have dance or queen competitions all around the world. And I think, yeah, that, yeah. And then to show it at Brixton and my mum and dad showing up, showed it at Brixton at the um, Ritzy, which was the classic back in the day, which is where I saw A Harder They Come. And when it premiered at the Carib, that's where A Harder They Come premiered. You know what I'm saying? I'm only just realising some of these circles as I'm talking to you right now, because I don't spend too much time looking back. So let's look forward. Yeah. What's, what's out there for Don. Because but here's the joke. What's out there for the Don? Here's the joke. You'd think, oh, man, his brethren, you'd think this brother's living large. Here's the joke. I'm living, I'm hustling like the rest of you. I, you know, I mean, it's a creative hustle, but I've got to be honest, it's a, it's a hustle nevertheless. I'm not, I went on my first holiday this year, first time in 12 years. Went six days there, I was like, oh shit, I booked something for six days, so I had to come back. Um, London will kill you, man. London's expensive. I've got two teenage kid girls. You can't buy them a yo-yo anymore, you know what I'm saying? Um, but, you know, it kind of keeps you on your toes. I mean, people say, Don Letts, oh, you do a real, you know, don't, don't you do a lot of things? Kind of have to, you know, living in this city. And the media game doesn't pay as, it's not as glamorous as people think, but I wasn't here for the glamour. I was, for, I was here for communication, inspiration, and some upliftment. And I get that out of it. And I'm not suffering, you know, I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. But um, what's next? I'm trying to raise funds for a project, a film I'd like to make about Afrofuturism, which I think is the only way forward for black culture. You know, there is a tendency these days to, you know, be defined by your color. And I think that's kind of limiting. You know what I mean? Like I said, we don't need to prove that shit. That's inherently who we are. So then from that point, you can take on everything. You know, when the whole, Black Panther thing happened, I started reading and educating myself, not only about black politics, but about, about black history. And, uh, you know, you know, at school you kind of taught, okay, just, your, your, your whole life sort of starts with slavery, and aren't you lucky to be here now? And it didn't take too much research to find out, well, hold on a minute, slavery, really bad, fucked up. But hear what? We've got this whole heap of history that predates that and actually predates a whole heap of your shit. And this ain't no raster rhetoric. It's documented fact that they have. It's just the way you present the shit. So here we are growing up in the UK with this, oh, should we, we used to be slaves, so we should be grateful. Fuck that. You know, we did, you know, it's, it, you know, we started up here, we've sunk to down here. It ain't the other way around. And I think it's a really important thing for black people to understand because it totally changes your perspective and how you look at life. 
it's a legacy of slavery to a degree. Is you know, some people kind of use it to justify, I don't know, I don't know having a chip or something. And if I focused on that, yeah, that's how I'd feel. But you know what? Like I said, they've got thousands of years of serious culture that predates a whole heap of Caucasian shit. And it ain't a question of who came first or whatever. The fact is, we have it. There's an equity there. Did you get what I'm saying? I ain't saying who did first and they're better. None of that shit. You got something, we got something. So what... Was... And I, that was a realisation that I had in, in you know, an early part of my youth that really tooled me up. So, in terms of looking to the future, there must be something you haven't done. I know you're not planning, you're not uh, strategic in that way, and it's not about luck. So it will be your experience focusing on delivering something next. What, what, what might that be? What I mean, I, I have to return to the meaning of my whole heart and soul believes in this idea of Afrofuturism because it's important in taking not just Don Letts forward, but Af black culture forward and not being defined by the street or the ghetto or urban or any of that nonsense. I mean, you know, like I said, we got that shit down and it's, people are making a lot of money out of that, you know, but um, I don't know how much it's uplifting us as a people, especially creative-wise. I mean, you know, where are the Sun Ra's and Jimi Hendrix and Lee Scratch Perry's of today? You know, um, George Clinton's, people that aren't playing down to what black's supposed to be. I mean, I think that's, we kind of hit a brick wall parodying ourselves, you know, and I'm not comfortable with that. So, yeah, if I had any money right now, anybody else got money, yeah, it would be Afrofuturism, because it ain't about a bit of entertainment, it's about inspiration, information. About 10 years ago, I got the opportunity to start DJing on a BBC Six Music, and I think when they asked me, they thought I was going to be doing a two-hour reggae show. But, but contrary to popular opinion, I'm not at home pumping bass every reggae all day long. It's a big part of who I am, it's inherent in who I am, it's part of my DNA. But it's not the sum total of my experience. And uh, my show's called Culture Clash Radio. You know, my tagline is, you know, crossing time, space and genres. And in a weird way, it's one of the most honest things I've ever done, because I'm not pandering to punk don or reggae don. I can just be me, you know. So if I want to play some Led Zepp, I'll play some Led Zepp. I want to play some Patsy Cline, I'll play some Patsy Cline, alongside some big youth or whatever. And uh, it's actually been quite liberating. And it, you know, it's funny, you know, people are always looking for the elixir of life, and for me, that's music. You know, because I think, you know, when you get stuck in your soundtrack is when you get old. But I like to find new tunes because it still gets me out of bed, because it ain't a hobby, it's not a job, it's my life. You know, I still believe in the power of music to inform, inspire and entertain, yeah. And also be a tool for social change, you know, I think that's important that people forget that, you know, it can change your mind. Not just your sneakers, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm proof of that. You know, I'm a testament to the power of music.